We have been looking through uh, the Upper Room Discourse, which is this section of scripture found in the Gospel according to John. John was one of Jesus' earliest followers and friends, and in this Gospel narrative, what he's doing is he's recording many of the things that Jesus taught, um, many of the miracles, but then also um, narrowing in on this particular scene right before he is arrested, tried, and crucified, which he also records as well as the resurrection. But this scene in chapters 13 through 17, where Jesus is there at the Passover meal, his final Passover meal with his disciples, and it's referred to as the upper room discourse, he's in the upper room. And he's going through this teaching about who he is, what he's all about, what his kingdom's really all about, and then what it means for them to actually be his followers after he leaves. How do they be his followers in terms of bringing forth the kingdom um, as these now spirit-filled people, right? And so we've just been walking through section by section and uh, asking ourselves, like, what, it, what would it have meant if we could step back into their shoes? Like, first century Palestine, listening to Jesus of Nazareth, and he's communicating Communicating these things, what are they thinking and understanding? And then asking ourselves, well, we're 2,000 years removed, so what does it actually mean and look like for us now as his followers in this day and age, as individuals, but also as a community? And so, yeah, section by section we've been going through, and now we're, we're in this sort of second portion of, of a passage in which Jesus has kind of shifted gears in terms of his tone. Uh, something has happened in the room. As he has mentioned that they're going to go through persecution and that he's going to leave, he can sense this sort of emotion within the room. And so the tone of, the, of this passage as well as last week comes with this just heartfelt shepherd, right? This uh, the, sort of like taking on the love of the father to his disciples. And so as we read through this, I want you to just think that, right? Think about the tone in which Jesus is saying these things as they are feeling great sorrow, great fear, concern, um, questioning, right? Maybe even doubting what this whole thing is about. And so read it with that tone from Jesus. And then uh, what I'm going to do is I'll pray. A little bit of introduction, introduction and then an outline as to where we're going. So, John 16, starting in verse 16. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples, they said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while, and you'll see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father? So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. And Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. And so he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. And truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for, as John was praying earlier, just this special moment in time. It's just an hour and a half, but oh, how desperately we need this hour and a half in our week. So thank you for getting us here. Thank you for a reason to be here, to to learn of your son and who he is and what he's done and what all of this means and the opportunity to sing and have our hearts stirred. And 
to be able to come to this table and to take in the broken body and the shed blood of your son. Father, we ask that as we uh, think through this teaching, God, that you would help us to understand, you would give to us wisdom, and you would open our ears and our eyes, and that you would soften our hearts, and God, that you would meet us here in a special way. We need you for this, and so please, please, God, would you answer our prayers, for we ask in the most matchless, the most precious name of Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen and amen. So, certainly, um, if you have been following Jesus for any significant amount of time, I'm certain that you've gone through moments of fear, moments of doubt, um, moments of question that could be spurred on by a number of different things. Maybe it's your own, your own guilt. Maybe it's your own shame. Maybe it's uh, just the situation of the world in which you live. But I'm certain that if you've been following Jesus for any amount of time, you've had these sort of emotional swings. You actually don't even have to have been following Jesus for that, right? But if you have been, it, it, it causes questions because the, the way that people talk about following Jesus sometimes is though it's supposed to just be this steady up to the right trajectory, right? Things are just always moving forward in a progressive, good way, right? But like I said, sometimes this sort of thing will happen. And I know for me, like, it's happened ever since I became a Christian. Right? There's been some seasons that are much longer where they're filled with just tremendous amounts of joy, and then other seasons where it's like, what is going on? I'm just on this coaster and I can't tell if it's going up or down and spinning around or whatnot. And uh, the last, you know, year or so for me has been kind of like that, to be totally honest with you. And uh, this morning, well, actually last night, I went to a friend's house for a birthday party. They live relatively close to us, so we, me and my wife rode our bikes and we left our, our kids at home. It's awesome having a 13-year-old now. <laughs> rode our bikes to the friend's house, <laughs> rode back, and... Uh, I don't know if I just thought I was super cool or something, but I, I fell, and my bike just like totally wrecked my leg. I've got this massive bruise on my leg now, so if you see me hobbling, that's why. <laughs> Good one. Um, and so, me and my wife are like after this. There's no reason for me to tell you that story at all. It has nothing to do with what I'm about to tell you. But we started having this conversation just about about life and about just about church and like my job and and. Um, and I was just being totally honest with her in the moment. I was like, I, I wish I could just call in sick tomorrow. Everybody else gets to call in sick. How come I don't get to call in sick? You know, everybody else, like, you just take the write-up, and you know that you got two more or whatever until you're fired, but, <laughs> but I, I can't do that. And I was just being brutally honest with her. And then this morning I get here, and the same sort of feeling is still there. And Jan comes up to me and, uh, and just spoke truth right into my heart. And she said, why don't you just think about what it is you're doing here in terms of giving yourself over, that even if you don't really want to, like, you do it. And she said that, and then as we were singing, I was thinking to myself, man, I get to, I get to invite you into the truth of the gospel again this morning. And not just you, but I get to invite myself into it too. And my hope is that's what happens this morning, that whatever season you're in right now, if it's a lull, if it's just fear, whatever it might be. My hope is that this will speak to your heart. And if it's not you in those moments right now, you're going to have them, and I hope that this will be something that you can recall to memory and into your heart. And maybe you have a friend right now, a family member, 
who is in that sort of season. And I'm hoping that this might be of help for you with them. You know, one of the interesting things about, about Jesus and his proclamation about what he came to do, like if I were just to survey the room and say, why did Jesus come? Like you'd probably land somewhere with like, oh, well, he came to save us. He came to forgive us. He came to set the captives free. He came to bear witness to the truth. He came to bind the brokenhearted. He came for all of these things, right? Right out of the mouth of Jesus, though, he says, I've come that you might have joy. I've come that you might have life and abundant life. I've come to make you this promise that no one's going to steal your joy from you. Like, these are the words of Jesus. This is such a big deal to him that he makes this proclamation. This is one of the reasons I have come, that you might have joy. What a beautiful thing. I want to think about this idea of joy and this passage in particular with you. Under four headings, um, I know what you're thinking. Usually there's two and we're already here for like 50 minutes. This is going to be a long day. No, it will be relatively brief today, okay? So these four headings, I want to talk to you about joy as it's assured, as it's special, as it's prayerful, and as it's wonderful. Okay, and what I mean by assured is that it's both promised and sealed. And what I mean by special is that it's not as simple as maybe happiness, the way that we might think of joy in, in our English language, right? But it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. But then also, how it is that we engage with that joy? How do we, how do we actually live in that? And so it's prayerful. That is to say we're entering into the, the presence of God. But also wonderful, which means that, that it requires some wondering, and, and dreaming and imagining and being reminded of great truth, right? So let's think, first of all, about how it's assured. And like I said, this is promised and sealed. First of all, promised. Look back with me at the, at the text in this um, engagement that Jesus has with his disciples. He says to them, a little while, and you'll see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while, and you'll not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father? So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. I just love like, the, how John includes this because he was a part of this conversation where Jesus is teaching and John was there sort of like, what is going on right now? I don't understand what this guy is talking about, right? And so it carries on and Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him and so he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me again a little while and you will see me. He asks them this question. He hears them trying to figure out this, this question, and then he responds with the question. He's just reiterating it to them. And then he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. When Jesus says truly, truly, there's multiple times in the Gospel of John where Jesus says truly, truly, and it's really like the, the idea of amen, amen. But it, it, when Jesus is saying this as a rabbi, this is him like saying, get in here and listen. Like, listen, and listen closely. Listen like this is really true, okay? And here's what is really true. Listen closely. You will lament. There's going to be pain. There's going to be sorrow. That's going to happen to you. And this is going to happen when I leave, and the world isn't going to feel that way. They're not going to be able to sympathize with you or empathize with you. In fact, the exact opposite you're going to feel sorrow, and they're going to be rejoicing. But he goes on, and then he says this. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. You see this promise here. 
this promise of, of sorrow, of pain, of fear, absolutely being turned into joy is what he is saying, right? That's, that's just an extraordinary promise, especially if you really think about the sort of sorrow that they're facing. Like, many of you in here have probably experienced the loss of a very close loved one, right? Maybe a spouse, maybe a parent, a grandparent, a brother, a sister, a son or a daughter. And that sort of pain, like I haven't really experienced that. I haven't had much loss in my life, really just a, recently a, a good friend of mine. But other than that, I haven't lost really any family members or close friends. I haven't really experienced this, right? But those of you who have experienced it, you know the pain. Right? You know the sorrow. You, you know like what, what happens in your mind and in your heart when you just think about that person now that they're gone. And because I haven't experienced that, I, I tried to just imagine that, you know? And <laughs> I'm not going to get emotional right now, but here's the thing. If, you stop, if that hasn't happened to you, and you just stop and think about one of those people in your life just not being around, like when I just stop and I think about my wife just not being here, like something happens, you know? Just the thought something happens. And this deep sorrow, because when they're gone, all sorts of things change. Like the, the simple things, like you can't just make a shopping list and go to the grocery store with them anymore. You can't just walk through the park with them anymore. When you experience something at work or amongst your friends, you would normally go home or give this person a call and share that experience with them, and now they're not there. Like the simplest of things that you used to just take for granted are all gone. And that sorrow is extreme. Right? And Jesus knows it. He knows that this is the way that they're going to feel. And he doesn't tell them not to feel it. He says, you will lament. You will have sorrow. He doesn't condemn them for the feeling. But rather, he gives to them this promise. It's promise that the sorrow will turn into joy. This promise, though, isn't just like any promise, right? And what I mean by that is like, we give these like kind of kitschy statement promises to, to people who are going through pain and sorrow, right? Like when, you're, when your kid's facing something painful, you look at them and you say, it's gonna be okay. You're visiting somebody in the hospital and you say, everything's gonna be okay. Maybe it's not, though, right? Maybe actually the cancer is gonna get worse Maybe actually there's going to be death. Maybe it is going to get worse. And we shouldn't be lying to people that everything is going to be okay. It might not. And here Jesus, he doesn't, he doesn't sugarcoat it. He, he, does, he doesn't lie to them. He doesn't say it's going to get better. In fact, right before this, he said, you're going to be persecuted. The world's going to hate you and they're going to kill you. He doesn't, he doesn't sugarcoat any of this. He's just totally honest. But he makes this promise that if it were just like your parent saying it's going to be okay, and you're being honest with the reality that maybe it's not. If this were just like one of those promises, we could approach it and say, yeah, maybe it's not, though. Maybe, maybe you're lying. This whole sorrow into joy thing, like, how can you make a promise like that? How can you make a promise like that and, and expect me to trust it? Well, here's how. Jesus doesn't just promise things. He seals the promise with reality. And here's what I mean. Notice, as he goes on, he says, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. You see what he's doing here? He's not just making a promise that they're going to have sorrow, but they're going to have joy after it. He's making a promise that's sealed with something he's going to do. Right? So it's not just open, everything's going to be okay. No, no, he's going to do something. 
And what he's going to do is he's going to return to them. And after he rises from the dead, he is sealing everything that he said before. In other words, if I made a promise, you can trust everything that I've said because I actually did rise from the dead, which means I have power over everything and I have enough to actually seal these things. It's not just everything's going to be okay. No, it actually, your sorrow will turn into joy is what he's saying because he is actually coming back to them. Now listen, if you're not a follower of Jesus in the room, like this is super, super, super important. And if you are, but especially if you're not, because listen, Jesus of Nazareth is making a claim here that he's been making throughout the Upper Room Discourse and, will, and made plenty of other places in the Gospel narratives too. He's making a claim that is so much greater than any philosopher, any religious leader, anybody who's ever tried to teach you about what life is and who God is and what he's like and what's actually gonna happen to you. Like he is... He is so far above and beyond those philosophers and leaders because, listen, Confucius came and he taught some really cool stuff and he died. He didn't come back. Muhammad taught some really cool stuff and he died. He didn't come back. Buddha taught some really cool stuff and he died. He didn't come back. So you've got all these maybe promises and teachings and ways in which maybe, sure, there's a bunch of good stuff in there probably that you could live by, but where does real joy come from? It can't come from them. Because all they can say is, it's going to be okay. But that's an empty promise. You get Jesus of Nazareth who rises from the dead, you get a true promise. Right? Jesus, risen from the dead, seals it. This is why Paul in 1 Corinthians says this. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. You know, this is coming from the Apostle Paul, who was beaten, left for dead, right, eventually even killed. Would it make any sense for him? to live through that unless he really did see the risen Christ. Like, of course he did. This is why when Jesus carries on at the end of verse 22, he says, and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. No one. He's declaring this emphatically, not just a promise, but a sealed promise in his coming again. And so first, this, this idea of joy is assured from the promise and the sealing here that Jesus gives. But not only is it assured, it's special. And what I mean by special is that it's not, it's, it's not just this fluffy feeling, and it's not just good circumstances, and it's not just what our world might tend to define as happiness. So as you carry on, notice what Jesus says. He gives this little analogy about this sort of sorrow turning into joy. And here's what he says in verse 21. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. That Jesus has given them, your sorrow will turn into joy, let me try to explain to you what it is that I mean here. And he goes to this woman giving birth and the sorrow or the pain, the agony that she's gonna feel as she is going through that process. Now, obviously, I've never given birth, but I've been present for four births, three natural and one C-section for my wife. And what I can tell you is there is a lot of blood <laughs> in those rooms when that baby is coming out. And <laughs> she can't see all the blood, so I don't know what's going on in her head, but I know what's going on in mine. And I'm thinking, I love this woman, and she is bleeding like crazy 
this, this can't be right. But the facial expression and the things that she says and the tone of her voice as she's going through this pain, like, it's just, it, you can tell, it's agonizing. Something is happening to her that is making her feel and think and talk differently, right? This thing is happening. And, and that's what Jesus is speaking of, this sorrow, right, of just like a, a woman who's in childbirth, like she's putting something out and it's exhausting her completely, emotionally, physically, right? And this, even with Jesus, like as you think about childbirth, right, in our day, you go, okay, hospital, comfy bed, um, epidurals. Uh, <laughs> Jesus is speaking in the first century, right? No comfy hospital beds, right? No, no, you know, no, certainly no drugs, right? Nothing like that. And not only that, you got to understand that the mortality rate was way less back then. Most kids, I mean, I don't know, I shouldn't say most, I don't know the actual percentage, but a lot of kids died before they were five years old. A lot of kids. And so they would actually coach parents, people would, would coach parents into essentially trying to not fall in love with your kid until they're over five, because you might experience their death. And so when somebody's giving birth in the first century, right, they're thinking not just about the pain in that moment, but the next five years. Right? They're thinking about trying to take care of a child that might not actually live. So there's so much more psychologically, mentally, and emotionally happening here. And this is what Jesus is comparing this pain to, right? Which means, for Jesus, like, he recognizes the pain. He's not, he's not saying there's not going to be pain. This is usually the way in which our world thinks about joy, though. When we say joy, we tend to think really minimalistically in the sense of happiness. And happiness for us is, it usually comes down to you know, getting rid of the things in your life that are uncomfortable or adding things to your life that are pleasurable. Right? And so if you don't like that particular relationship, if you don't like that particular job, if you don't like this particular circumstance or scenario, whatever it might be, get rid of that thing. Right? Get rid of that, get that out of your life, and then you'll have joy, they would say. But Jesus is saying that she is going through labor, like it's happening, it's uncomfortable, and it hurts, it is happening. He doesn't say it's going to disappear, something's going to overwhelm it though. And he doesn't say just add more pleasurable things to your life, because that's the way that the world usually thinks about happiness and joy too, like get rid of these things, but then add these things. So find that other relationship, find that other job, get, you know, get, find that other circumstance that is pleasurable, and then you'll have joy. But this is not a pleasurable experience that this woman is going through in labor. Rather, what Jesus is saying is this is an extraordinary kind of joy. Right? It's not as simple as happiness. It's extraordinary in the sense where it overwhelms the sorrow. It overwhelms the pain and, in fact, even digs its way into the pain and the sorrow so that you might experience something even greater than that. Um, a number of months ago, we walked through uh, the fruit of the Spirit, and when, uh, when I spoke on joy, I used this uh, illustration that I want to bring back to you. It was maybe maybe eight months ago, I forget how long it was, so you might remember it. But think of it in terms like this, right? Think of your reality. Think of everything in your life, right? So your relationships, your experience currently, your job, your whatever it might be, just your life, like put it all in a circle, right? So I think, yeah, like that. In that circle, put your whole life in that circle. That was a, whatever. Okay, think of your whole life, right? <laughs> this is your reality, okay? You have a reality, you live in it, right? Now, the feelings that you have could very much be based on that reality, right? Because that's what you're living in. And so your emotions come out of the experiences that you have in that reality. Now, here's the thing. There's a greater reality than even your reality. There's a reality of the world. What I mean by that is that your reality directly impacts you, but there's also a reality of the world that indirectly impacts you. So when you think about the city in which you live in, the neighborhood, the country in which you live in, when you think about, you know, second 
relationships as opposed to those directly um, that, you know, that you relate to. That world is a reality too. And living in that world indirectly causes certain things to happen in you too, certain emotions and so forth, right? So you're impacted by these things, by your reality and by the larger reality. And what Jesus seems to me to be saying here is that even though that's true, this is the reality. You're giving birth and it's painful. This is the reality, but there's an ultimate reality. Not just, of, not just of, your world, of your personal world and the world at large, but there's a bigger reality beyond this. And what he's saying is that bigger reality actually has the power to force its way into the world reality and your personal reality and overwhelm the sorrow that you experience in those other circles. There's a way in which this thing can, can get in and can impact all of that so that you can actually experience what he says is true joy. This is why Paul the Apostle in Romans 5 can say this. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Think of that bigger reality. You're standing in that ultimately. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. See this, Paul's looking at his reality and he's looking at the reality of the world. But you know where he's really looking? The ultimate reality. That where he stands is there in Christ. He's brought him into a greater reality that now he can even in the midst of suffering view that reality in a completely different way. The same way that a woman giving birth doesn't escape the pain, right? I mean, and, and think of this too, right? Because Jesus says, your sorrow will turn into joy just like this woman giving birth. But listen, when a woman gives birth, does she just like hop out of bed and she's like, oh, sweet, giddy up. No, is it just bad joke Sunday or what? No, that doesn't happen, right? They're, they stay in bed, right? They have a hard time going up and down the stairs. They have a hard time taking a shower and the doctor usually prescribes something or wants them to stay there for a few days. The pain, even after the child is born, doesn't just disappear. He's talking about something beyond that. And that's what this child coming in is really all about. But how do we engage with that ultimate reality? Because Jesus doesn't just make the promise and say, so you're gonna have it. He invites us into the engagement with it. So how do we pull the ultimate reality into our reality to experience what he's calling here is joy? Well, look in, in, uh, in chapter 16 again, verses 23 and 24. He says, in that day, you'll ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, again, listen, listen, pay attention. I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Ask that your joy may be full. Ask the Father in my name. What's Jesus doing here? It really, simply all he's doing is he's inviting us into the ultimate reality of who God is. Right? Ask in my name to the Father. If you recall, a number of weeks ago, we were looking at how Jesus said that the Father is the vine dresser, that he is the true vine, and that we are the branches. And he said to abide in his love. And we started talking about what does it actually mean to abide in his love? And we said, well, maybe if we look at the way that Jesus and the Father abided with each other, then it'll make sense for us to learn how to abide in them. And so we looked at how the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all engage with each other, right? And how there's this sort of, what has been referred to as like this divine dance that takes place, where the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the Father communicates his love to the Son through the Spirit at his baptism, right? Jesus, rejoicing in the Holy Spirit, prays to the Father. And so you see this dance sort of happening within the Trinity. And then he calls us to abide in it. 
So to abide here, Jesus, I think, is making very simply one way in which we can do that is through prayer. You pray through the Son, by the Spirit, to the Father. And when you do that, you enter into the divine dance. And, and with this in particular, in regards to joy, you're pulling the divine dance or the trinity, like all of who God is and his reality, into your reality. So just by simply asking and engaging with the Father, what we're doing is we're pulling in that ultimate reality. And that's part of where joy is actually found. But this joy isn't just biting, it's also shaping. Notice how he says this. He says, in that day, you'll ask nothing of me. But notice he says, in my name and in my name. Like, he wants us to understand who we actually are in him. Like, he has mentioned this multiple times throughout the Upper Room Discourse as well, right? That we, by his spirit, are now in him. So every time you pray in his name, you're reminding yourself of who you truly are, right? Which brings humility but confidence. It turns you into the person that you were really meant to be as you engage with, I am in him. That's my ultimate reality. So you pray to the Father with this humility that you need him, but with this confidence that you can actually go to him. And as you do that, you begin to be molded and shaped, really even into a completely different person. And so the first way is, is this prayerfulness. But the second that we engage is what I'm saying is wonderful. Look back with me and notice Notice the amount of times that Jesus speaks of seeing, right? A little while and you will see me no longer. Again, a little while and you will see me. Is this what you're asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me? So also you have, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Notice this seeing and seeing and seeing. What's that all about? Well, the seeing is all about our imagination, our mind, our thoughts, right? So prayer is this engaging with God for all of who he is, being shaped by that. But here, this is, this is recalling in your mind who Jesus is, what Jesus actually did. In other words, for, for, for them, what he's saying is, I want you to look forward to the time in which I'm coming again. And I want you to dwell on that. And when I actually do leave, when I ascend, I want you to look back and be reminded that everything that I had promised is true. Everything that I said would happen did happen. I want you to remember that when I, was on, when I went to the cross, when I went to Calvary, for you to know that you are truly loved and forgiven. And when I rose from the dead and I said that I would, I want you to look back at that and be reminded that when you're going through the sorrow, when you're going through the pain, that it's just like a mother giving birth. Look back and wonder. Look back and recall these things. Friend, like if that's where you're at, like if you're in that place of sorrow, of pain, of, and wherever it comes from, whether it's guilt, whether it's shame, whatever, it's just crazy circumstances of life. If you're tired of the roller coaster, listen, let me remind you right now. God took on flesh. Like he looked at the world in which you live and he knew that there was going to be pain and he knew that you were going to face it. He knew that there was going to be sorrow. And instead of saying, I'm just going to let him deal with it, he entered into it. And not only that, but he faced it himself. Like one of his own disciples betrayed him, sold him for 30 pieces of silver. Another one of them denied him three times. Then when he gets arrested, they all run. Jesus faces the sorrow that he knows that we're going to have to face. And not only that kind of pain, but the kind of pain of death, like true, agonizing, torturous death he faces. You look back at that, and you remind yourself in the midst of your sorrow, you're not alone in that sorrow. Whatever kind of sorrow it is, you're not alone. He's there with you in it. 
And you remind yourself, though, that three days after that sorrow that he faced, he rose from the dead. And, and so what, what you do is you look back at that, but now you know in his resurrection, you look forward. You wonder at the reality of one day, as Paul was saying, that, that all of this is actually producing something, right? If you look back at what Jesus says in verse 21, he says, when a woman's giving birth, she has sorrow, listen to this, because her hour has come. But when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. Notice this. In John's gospel, John's just a masterful literary genius. You read through the gospel of John, you notice all of these threads woven through, and even just in the upper room discourse, you notice this repetition as he's, he's capturing, trying to capture the minds of what wouldn't even actually be his, his readers, more of his listeners. Back then, you gotta remember, they would take this scroll and they would gather a group of people, right? And they would just read through it. And if you just read through it from beginning to end, you're gonna notice all these threads woven through, right? And it's gonna capture your imagination. And what he's doing here with this woman giving birth and calling it her hour would have immediately grabbed their attention. Because throughout the gospel up until this point, up until chapter 12, Jesus has said multiple times, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And then in chapter 12, right before he invites them into the upper room, he says, my hour has come. And the son of man is going to be lifted up. The son of man is going to be glorified. What's the hour he's referring to here? The woman giving birth is him. Like that's what he was doing on the cross. That's what he was doing in the resurrection. That's what he was doing in sending of his spirit. And so what we do now is we look forward to the promises that are sealed in that too. That listen, whatever sorrow, whatever pain, again, if it's caused by guilt or shame or circumstances, if you're on that roller coaster right now, listen to me. One day, there will not be a tear shed. One day, there will not be such a thing as cancer. One day there will not be such a thing as pain. One day there will not be such a thing as broken relationships and marriage or with your kids or with your parents. One day there's not gonna be any concern about the way that you look or present yourself or the performance that you failed at. One day you're gonna be so secure in him and everything is going to be made new. Like that is what is true. So whatever you're going through today, live there. That's true. Let it overwhelm what you're going through. Pull it into the reality now and see the way that he sees. Because he sees something glorious. Live there. So I'm gonna invite us to the opportunity to, to worship, but before I do, normally I would just pray and say some things about what it is that we do, but I wanna talk specifically to the table today. When we, when we come to this table, we are tangibly taking in the wonder of the cross and the resurrection and the glory of all things new. And so as you come forward, like, just let that saturate your mind. Let the blood of Jesus saturate the bread and let your insides saturate that truth. And so however you want to do that, if you want to reflect before you come forward, if you want to take it and get to the side, if you want to pray with somebody, however it is that you want, but just let that truth grab hold of you today. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you that you, by your spirit, never fail us. Never. Thank you, God, that you've promised joy and you've sealed it. Help us, God, to grab hold of that promise today. Give us the strength to believe, to trust, to let your truth overwhelm us. Please, Father, in Jesus' name.